0: Hi, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Today, my conversation with Mark Vernon. Uh, Mark first came to my attention as a collaborator and and friend of uh, Rupert Sheldrake, who I'm a huge fan of. But Mark has a lot of great insights and a lot of great online content that can be found. Um, He also wrote a book called, um, called The Secret History of Christianity, Jesus, The Last Inkling, and the Evolution of Consciousness. And it's a long title. Uh, The book is really, really good. I read it, and it's basically marks distillation of the thoughts of um, or the views of Owen Barfield, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, But I recommend the book and and this podcast interview regardless of whether you've heard of Mark Vernon or regardless of whether you've heard of Owen Barfield. Because Barfield's general, um, like the very short form of what Barfield had to say was that um, consciousness evolves. And he has a, um, Mark presents a history of basically consciousness um, from early days. I mean, he doesn't really get into prehistoric men, but from, from the earliest writings and the philosophers um, up to Jesus and beyond Jesus to the Reformation and, and beyond that. Um, and it's really, really interesting because it shows why ancient writings were so different than today and how ancient people really viewed themselves and the world in a fundamentally different way than we do today. And then it also shows how the arrival of Jesus and the writings uh, in the Bible Kind of perfect. We're perfectly timed to kind of capture um, and codify a shift in consciousness that was happening. Uh, so we get into that in the interview, and the book is definitely worth a read. Um, and and Mark Vernon just is a, a fascinating guy. So um, hope you like it. I enjoyed it very much. I hope to talk to, to Mark again. And. Uh, Without more rambling from me, here's my uh, conversation with Mark Vernon on Morning Talk Show. Mark Vernon, welcome to Morning Talk Show.
1: Thank you very much for having me on. Nice to join you.
0: Um, You are one of those people, uh, I don't know if you have this, where you come across someone and you're not quite primed for them yet. So I I was aware of you maybe a year ago when I was looking into uh, Rupert Sheldrake and listening to your dialogues with Rupert Sheldrake and uh, at the time I was all doe eyes for Sheldrake and and uh, as many people are because he's quite a um, he's a deep well himself and then lo and behold later um, I come across your site and your your Owen Barfield your short video is about Owen Barfield and uh, all of a sudden uh, I got really excited about what you had to say and all of the ideas and things that you bring together in your, excuse me, in your work. so uh, just a broad question, how do you describe yourself and your work when people ask? unless that's too broad, no pressure.
1: yeah no well it's evolving, I mean you mentioned Rupert and I remember discovering Rupert and apart from what he said which I found intrinsically interesting, I was also I think inspired by his courageousness really. I find him a very courageous thinker, very open. Yeah. And it was as much the spirit he says things in. You know, he's kind of prepared to go wherever he feels the evidence yeah. and his experience of life is leading. And I found that hugely liberating. Yeah. Um and so learnt a lot from him. And uh and in a way I've been trying to follow that my own path in that way too, in that same mm-hmm. spirit. And yes. Barfield who you mentioned there has been key. Um Partly quite practical stuff. I mean, I did this PhD on Plato, and whilst I'm like, I ended up getting the PhD, all right, and uh, and you know grappling with Plato during that time, but I felt I never really understood what Plato was on about, <laughs> even though I got this PhD. And right. it wasn't until I started reading Barfield that I began to get a sense of what might really be going on. You know, similarly, I had this kind of background with Christianity. Um, which has had its ups and downs and it's only really <laughs> since that I've begun to make some sense of that.
0: Yeah. Um, I laugh I laugh because I can relate to that in such a major way. Keep going.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, um, so it's an ongoing process, but I guess, you know, I I feel like I'm pretty settled at the moment, feeling that inner life is what um, you know, we're not so good at, say, in modern culture, certainly in the West. And um you know, for, or also for a psychotherapy training and working as a psychotherapist. So trying to bring all these things together and kind of offer whatever I can in a way, as well as tr- keeping working on myself um, mm-hmm. to, to to develop this side of life. Because um, I think it, you know, one way or another, I think it underlines both a lot of our problems, but also can carry us a huge long way as well. So, know,
0: yeah, yeah in
1: general in response, but
0: no, that's great. And And one of the things that I appreciate that I hope you appreciate is unusual about that is, um, the kind of casual way in which you say you did a PhD on Plato and you didn't know what he was on about. Um, (laughs) like that kind of, um, ability to hold your own knowledge loosely, um, I think is part of cultivating that inner life and making it less restrictive. I was actually yeah. just as I was preparing for this, I was watching a video where I think you might be familiar with Tim Freak, or maybe you've heard of Tim Freak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, I certainly know of him. Yeah. He was on my uh, on the podcast as well and and he just re- released a video saying he's been wrong about uh, consciousness being the ground of reality. Or you know, he he's just and he kind of seemed excited to to say that. And I think that's kind of one of those really important things that um, you know while we also we get somebody like Rupert isn't bound by what he thinks people's response to his ideas will be he hopefully and you aren't bound by what you have you know how you have uh, imagined yourself in the past you know mm. that w- so yeah that's that's really good and and really healthy. I mean you have to work at it
1: it's not you know it's uh I think you have to be kind of become conscious of how you police yourself and all those kind of things. And, um, and you know, it's a constant process of discernment as well. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, you know, as long as you feel there's a general momentum of expansion. And, and I, I, I'm very keen on the word freedom, the idea that um, it, it's a kind of freedom that's not just any old thing, um, but it's a kind of freedom that where you sense that you're coming closer to the way things are, that at the same time feels freeing. Um, mm. it's that sort of I don't know like an inner kind of not quite a moral compass but some kind of compass
0: yeah that yeah
1: track you to check
0: on I feel like we're birds in many cages and uh, yeah freedom is freedom is maybe something we move towards while letting our definition of freedom evolve at the same time you mm-hmm. know so uh, yeah I, I, um, I found lots of uh, of freeing things in, in your book, um, which I just finished the audio book yesterday. So hopefully it's all fresh in my mind. And, uh, as I mentioned in my email, normally I, I, I reach out really quickly when I discover someone and I talk to them almost like as fresh as I can. So, uh, having read your whole book, um, it's really interesting. I, I feel a bit of pressure to sound like I understood it. Um, but, uh, how, so the book, um, can, can you describe the, the current book and your purpose for writing it?
1: Yeah, so this was, uh, this is the book, A Secret History of Christianity. And it, the subtitle is Jesus, The Last Inkling, and the Evolution of Consciousness.
0: That's the part and I can't the, remember the, is the subtitle usually. Anyway, Jesus, yeah. The Last Inkling, and the Evolution of Consciousness. Okay, go yeah, ahead. So The Last
1: Inkling refers to Barfield. He's often referred to as The Last Inkling because he was yeah. in the first group of this Oxford gaggle that included Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And then he outlived them all, dying in 1997. Um, And it was my attempt, you know, having engaged with Barfield and got tremendously interested and excited by what he was saying, to tell the story of Christianity through his insights and, in a way, see how much they stacked up still, too. So I did quite a lot of work on the biblical scholarship and the ancient history um, to see whether his line of interpretation, you know, it's not. Christianity is many, many things, so it's never going to encompass them all, and it would be foolish to think it would. But I wanted to find out whether there was at least a kind of uh, a core, strong current of scholarship from other areas that could be used to um, support his ideas. Um, Because, you Mm. know, one of his ideas is that something tangible is unfolding in history, even as it's also got huge spiritual significance. Um, Mm. So you have to kind of at least make a good enough case that it does land somewhere um, in mm. the real world um, you know so if I'd done the work and found that the historical Jesus in so far as uh, that figure can be known at all just looked like nothing Barfield had ever said then that would be a problem but actually um, it it made a lot more more sense to me so um, the mm. book is in a way that it's also um, I hope it's a kind of a way of engaging with christianity particularly perhaps for those who um, feel that a lot of mainstream christianity doesn't quite catch it for them but they don't want to go the complete demythologization route as well they find that emptying of, yeah. of the meaning of it um, So so he, he kind of represents a third way for me too to try and make sense of this great past i've got with christianity
0: yeah uh, yeah and I, that's that's very relatable and i think that the demythologizing route is, it, it's become kind of a default, I, I think, in, in the way people talk. And I was, I, I've been in a, a, a period of spiritual upheaval for a couple years now, to the point that I actually really enjoy it now. And things like your book, you know, are like uh, um, confirming of that. But uh, uh, at, a, at a certain point, I just assumed that, well, here comes here comes atheism. You know what I mean? Like here comes complete uh, scientific materialism, you know, like, and I I almost was like, uh, well, you know, uh, you know, like I, you know, you feel like you're by the exit door of a religion and everybody's over here in the religion. You're like, okay guys, I'm, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go, I'm going to go out. I'm going to, do you want me to close the door? Or, you know, like, (laughs) and and you don't want to go out. You don't want to stay in. And so, yeah, I, this book is really, um, Really interesting to me in that way. The requirement I've started to feel like it's not any particular idea. Uh, it's the requirement of that idea, or the fostering, or the enforcement of uh, of an idea. You know, because scientific materialism uh, is a state of thinking that we probably needed at a certain point to kind of c- clear out some things and to to demystify some things and to sort of um, Make this more concrete uh, view of reality after original participation um, to, to really explore it. But it what you know. But I, I, it it, it can doesn't need to be a perpetual state. It's it's the enforcement of that. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that resonates with you.
1: Yeah, no, no I mean I you know I'm engaged with science. Um, my first undergraduate degree actually was a physics degree. And I was lucky there because my tutor um, was always one of these physicists that had an expansive imagination rather Mm. than wanting to close things down. Um, He actually has spent his whole career working on dark matter um, for like 40 or more years now and still doesn't know whether it even really exists. So that's kind of what it's like working in real physics. Um, So, you know, I think a lot of physicists hold a lot more lightly what in the public domain seems really robust scientific materialism. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. So although I, I never quite, um, I, I couldn't really ever say I was an atheist, but I certainly had quite a strong agnostic phase,
0: mm.
1: uh, where I, um, you know, suspected that religion was, you know, supernatural nonsense, if you like. But then every mm. time I went into a cathedral or heard a bit of religious music, I would think, but wait a minute, this sounds like nothing greater has ever been expressed or captured in stone. Yeah, so it seems exactly. A bit odd at the same time, we say this is the you know, the gross emptiness of human life. Yeah. Uh, it- yeah. So it was that kind of tension that kept me uh, just from flinging it all off. But I also get the, the kind of leaving the group behind because I do think that a lot of the Christianity I know anyway, and particularly um, the Church of England, um, I can't really share it with many people that go to church. It, it mm. seems too narrow and the ecclesiastical constraints just seem, fixated on themselves to me so mm. um you know I, I i get why that happens that's what happens in groups um yep. but it, there's a kind of loneliness to it as well as well as you know frustration and anger as well at times
0: yeah i mean and i think there's a dissonance that is present even up to the most staunch vocal you know uh members of of those groups there's a kind of a mania uh you know that Is uh, that they're suffering from But I also don't want to be the person who accuses Everyone uh, in those situations Of being that way like I really think Christianity um, Christianity Gave me a language uh, An internal language that That um, has served Me at every point At every point in my life Even in high school I remember someone saying Religion was illogical And I I got At that time I would have been very you know um, into destroying them, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and, and in my mind, I was like, but no, you know, like I didn't know about the idea or that I think of now as internal logic, Whereas it's like, there is, there is something here. There's an internal logic. It's deeper. And like, when, as soon as I tried to explain it, it was like, uh, it it all fell apart, but yeah, there's something, there's something going on there. And, and there are many people deep within every uh, sect of Christianity and many other religions who, they've found enough of a kernel of that transcendent truth that they're, they're happy to be there and, 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 and work in that work. So I don't want to, I don't want to diss anyone like, uh, but yeah, but I'm more, more in line with what you, uh, what you're saying. So um, one of the things I wanted to say about your book before we get deep into the conversation uh, is that I felt that Barfield, you didn't need to be a Barfieldian uh, to, to read it, and so like based on the title, I already recommended it to a friend, and and he's like, I've never heard of Owen Barfield, and uh, and I I was like, no, no, really, you don't have to, you don't have to be a fan uh, of Owen Barfield or have heard of him. So I guess that's my. It's not a quibble, but it's one of those things that, that I hope people don't not read it because they're like, oh, I don't know who Owen Barfield is, because what it what it seemed to me was is a really well well written history of um, basically of, of philosophy and, and, and Christianity that goes from uh, pre-Christianity and, and the early philosophers up to the present day and really frames, uh, frames how our, our thinking about every single thing has, has changed so yeah, it's not a question. No, but either, but, yeah. one of the
1: reasons why I like Barfield is because he I think he saw himself kind of in the service of uh, greater ideas greater unfoldings you know life itself reality itself Mm. um and both for himself but also for others trying to open up how that's deeper and particularly with this idea of the evolution of consciousness. as you say you know for him christianity begins about a thousand years before christ um Mm. because that's when things start to pick up some sort of momentum of which um, the figure of Christ is a kind of culmination or a pivot point, kind of crystallized yeah. is what's been unfolding mm. and then launches it into what we call Christianity. Um, yeah. And then you've got the scientific bit, which is, is throwing it into question again, you know, yeah. 1500 years later, but yeah, no. And so he, um, yeah, the book, he's, he's kind of like the, I don't know, the presiding spirit or the guide rather than it really being about him per se. Right yeah
0: well, and because I was listening to the audiobook I wasn't sure if there were ever parts that were quotations or like the, you didn't actually even bring Barfield's name into it a ton uh, so I was, was the, the lion's share of it was your interpretation of Barfield like putting it into a like into your own words?
1: yeah yeah you know I, I hoped uh, in the audiobook when it was Barfield quote it was pretty clear so but they were quite rare mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, partly because, you know, part of the reason why Barfield's not so well known is he's not like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien in the sense that he's not nearly such a clear, brilliant writer. You, right. He's the kind of writer you wrestle with, but he reveals in the, re- in the wrestling. Yeah. Um, you know, so which is, that's the joy. Um, yeah, so, but I, d- I did want to try and put across, um, for people that, you know, have some, even if it's quite light notion of Christianity, um, it doesn't really mean much more than knowing that it exists, mm-hmm. um, but could kind of get into the in inner story. Yeah. Um, what this might be about and why it might become so culturally significant.
0: Mm-hmm. And you can see uh, the book made it really clear that you know Jesus uh, what lived at a t- at a very crucial period in history, and rather than being this this force that Get took a bunch of loose threads of history and forced them together, which really doesn't jive with any of his character that, that you see when you read the Bible. He was more like he stood there as, as things, you know, as the stampedes, um, you know, collided and was the, t- the flashpoint, um, you know, just kind of nudged a few things here and there to kind of, I almost think of Jesus as standing in the, Uh, in in the pinch point of infinity, you know, the, the, the infinity symbol and that it went and then back out. And so it's nice because you don't, again, you don't, there's no requirement of belief that Jesus was the son of God to read this book and say, okay, like something significant happened here. And I, you know, maybe, maybe you never move on to, okay, now I, you know, I, I recite the, Apostles' Creed, and now I, you know, I, 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 hold the modern view of Christian salvation, but it, but it's really it, the book can still change your perception and leave this really, I, I would say, hopeful kind of vision of the future as something where where change can actually happen, you know, in in, in human beings.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, Barth was quite clear that nothing stops; everything is continually moving for good and ill yeah Um, but yeah no you i mean he actually wrote a very nice essay uh, where he said that if he'd never heard of christianity he would have presumed from his study of words that something pivotal happened at about zero ad plus or minus (laughs) a few years a few decades Um, and the reason was because he by tracing the history of words and the way they change meaning he felt you could track how human awareness human experience changes Mm. um And so, for example, free will, which we now think is essential to what it is to be human, doesn't actually really get discussed until the first century AD when it kind of takes off. So you think, so what happened to bring in this notion and why didn't it really exist before? Um, So, yeah, he, through his study of words, which I I also like Barford because he has got evidence, you know, this isn't just him kind of uh, dreaming it up, Um, Hmm. although he wouldn't have been down on dreaming things up, actually. But nonetheless, he, you know, kind of... uh, it's through tangible, hard study that I think hasn't been refuted. Actually, it's it's right. very unfashionable history he does because yeah. most history these days is just what happened next, and right. and historians don't like reading any more into it. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, um, he you know he's the historian that that sees something deeper patterns unfolding, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. So he, he 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 said he would have believed in um, a sort of ersatz uh, Christianity even if he hadn't. Um, Heard of Christianity,
0: right? Uh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, and the, the idea of words, um, the idea of words being yeah, uh, having a soul. I think is the way he puts it. Right, and and uh, that that is that's I guess that's sort of like one of those ideas that's akin to Rupert Sheldrake's "The Sun Is Conscious," um, where it's like uh, all of the evidence that he's seeing in the real world. In this mighty intuition that he has, Sheldrake and Barfield, that this is that that the abstraction that takes place in his head, the blocks get stacked up, and that's where you end up. And I don't think, I mean, that that's that, that's an issue of faith to me to say that words have a soul or to say that the sun is conscious. But what it what it says to me when someone says a a, a statement so bold is that. There's a there's a path here. There's something here. There there's more. You know there there's I can follow this, and I don't have to get all the way to the idea that words are conscious. Uh, so would you say you believe that that are not conscious words that words have a soul? Would you say you believe that words have a soul? Oh yeah
1: yeah. I'm, I'm, or maybe not a soul, but they certainly transmit soul. Mm. Um, you know they, 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 that's why they have meaning. Um, mm. You know if you if you're a physicist, words are just vibrations in the air. Mm. Um, If you're a linguist, you know, they um, have certain kind of shape and function. Mm. um, But we actually hear meaning in words. Yeah, Um, you know, life worlds as it were brought to us. That's why you can read poetry or you can read fiction or even prose. Um, So they definitely transmit life to us. And I think that's all that soul means, right? It has an inner animating quality. Well. Um,
0: Yeah,
1: maybe just to say just, just on Rupert and the Sun being conscious, I actually think this is Rupert um, being a bit, ha- having a bit of fun in a way. I think um, so too. He's quite a witty writer, actually, in his own way. And basically, what he's doing is he's saying, "Look, this panpsychism—the idea that consciousness is somehow embedded and part and parcel of material, the material world of matter—if um, that's so, then the sun is a very large assembly of matter doing all sorts of complex and sophisticated things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, wouldn't that be a kind of an emergent consciousness at least if yeah. you know the reason why you like the idea that matter has some kind of embedded consciousness because when it gets so complicated in your brain it actually produces consciousness mm. um, so i think uh, he's he's kind of like seeing how far that argument will run and challenging yeah. people um, I like but i that. think Barfield barfield's idea was quite different actually that um if you like for him he's of the n- more neoplatonic view that that matter is a kind of reflection or um, an abstraction of consciousness. It's more idealism than panpsychism to use the sort of technical philosophical words. So, um, you know, in that view, um, well, in the platonic view, um, there is the kind of Aboriginal one, which is pure consciousness, if you like, or even beyond consciousness. Um, And then because part of its inner dynamic is already to flow out, to emanate, to unfold, um, this, this naturally yeah. happens the and sort of it ripples out of you like which produces creation and then matter is uh, uh, one sort of uh, product of this unfolding consciousness um, right. so it's not the matter itself um, uh, carries consciousness but like everything else in the cosmos it reflects consciousness right. it's more that kind of idea.
0: right and I mean uh, so, oh, so many ideas uh, and that just shows how the idea of words with the soul shows illustrates that we don't actually live in, we don't live in a materialist world. Like even, even the most staunch materialist, you know, uh, couldn't, couldn't even move without uh, meaning and without this sort of overlay that, you know, uh, people can describe as spiritual. And that word is prohibitive to some people, but it is like, you know, there is a, There is a non-physical overlay. There is a creative process that goes into, um, if not creating the world, interpreting the world to the point that you can even take a single step or think a single thought. Um, I liked in the book where you said, and I have it here, hold on. Uh, music. It's about music. Yeah. Music should be, uh, musicality has to be, musicality must be approached musically, not acoustically, and spirituality must be processed spiritually, um, which is, is interesting um, and I wonder if there's a... It, it, I wonder if some, some of the words might be or like spirituality might be tainted but that that concept is strong what do you... What, like yeah yeah you...
1: no well I mean the word, I know the word spiritual and spirituality is, is tricky and some people just hate it and it's used in all sorts of ways but I don't know. I was involved with a project, actually, which ended up being called Spiritual Eyes. And we spent hours debating the S-word and just figured that (laughs) at the end of the day, you have to kind of live with it. Um, Because it does capture something that is certainly not the material aspect of life, but it's more than just the emotional and psychological as well. And if you're reaching for that, then you have to go for it. But yeah, no, the the thoughts on music. uh, This is actually one of the points where C.S. Lewis and Barfield... Uh, come close together and um, that Lewis wrote this essay um, or I think it was a sermon actually originally and it's now been published as an essay called transposition and his idea was that precisely that that you know much like I don't know when you look at a picture you don't just see sort of as it were color on the surface of the paper or lines on the surface of the paper you see an image and that's because you bring something to the picture that can interpret the image. So mm-hmm. when you hear the notes of a piece of music, you bring something to those notes to hear the music. Yeah. And so the question is then, where does that come from? Um, and you know, again, you can, I suppose, make a kind of materialist argument for that. Um, but it seems much more natural, uh, given the actual experience that music can have upon us mm-hmm. to presume that it's channeling a whole lot more. Um, and mm-hmm. that's why we love it and it takes us elsewhere. And, um, it gives us transcendent numinous feelings as well mm. as everything else that it can do.
0: yeah, and it it has, in the experience of art, as something we don't uh, necessarily acknowledge, is that there is a creative there's a creative element to our participation in art. Uh, I, I think in the and the participation with that is uh, well, I mean, th- the participation is is one of the things that makes it art rather than um, you know just just a tool of information or something like that
1: yeah yeah so an, an, an AI doesn't participate in life even right. though it might seem to it's just re- it's just uh, replicating something yeah uh, where we um, I think we only know anything at all actually to the extent that we participate in it that it becomes part of our being um, yeah yeah so it's it's a very core feature yeah. um, of our lives
0: Um as you were, um, as you were speaking, as I was listening to your book, um, that you were, you, you got into where you were talking about, um, imagination, um, and Barfield felt that imagination was, um, was crucial. And there's kind of this, uh, little, little cohort that I discovered in my, in my online travels with like, uh, um, is it Malcolm Geit, uh, in Coleridge and, and you know, like, basically the the um the examination of of the uh romantic period of uh of of really you know kind of using words to to using the soul of words in poetry and that kind of thing um, and so as as I was hearing this, I was trying to um, th- the thought came to my mind of of creation uh the act of creation as one of our six Sense or as a sixth sense, and then sure enough, sure enough, you you said that. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Uh, You you said it, but like chapters later, and it was very interesting because I was, you know, I I was quibbling in my mind not with the concept of of imagination as a as as a crucial tool and as something that is a part of every experience of reality because I'm fully on board with that. Like I'm a I'm an artist. And I'm a person who writes music and lyrics. And, and so that was, that was immediately evident to me, but then I was a little bit worried that, because I think that, I think there's some things in this book that are so important to, that speak so well to our time right now. They're not like a, they're not this, um, time capsule of thought from, you know, from the Inklings era. That I was a little bit worried that that idea of imagination was going to be a stopping point for a lot of people who don't consider themselves imaginative and then so it kind of crystallized actually in the idea of of creativity as a sixth sense to me so um, forgive me if this is wordy I kind of I kind of structure these as conversations where where both people explore ideas so I, I, I really don't want to seem like someone who just loves the sound of my own voice I'm engaging with your ideas.
1: no sure yeah no um, this is this imaginative act this very conversation it's precisely what imagination is it's searching and feeling and trying to fight the right word or the right image that is exactly what takes us into reality.
0: yeah which is so interesting because that's what this that's what this podcast is for me as an act of creation but or an act of imagination but I I don't know if it falls into the category that categories that people would call imagination or call creativity because it seems like just a conversation but what was what was fascinating to me about this whole concept of uh creativity as a as a sense is that it is it's a participatory sense in a way that nothing else is uh in other words uh, if you if If you if in hearing something, the heard became a part of the hearer. That would be the that would be the corollary. If you if you tried to sort of say um, if you tried to compare creation as a sense uh, to the other senses, it would be like if I'm using this sense to sense something, that is actually a part of me as well. So for me, I can look at Mark Vernon on the screen in England and with my sense of sight, at least with the way that I have portrayed my sense of sight for my whole life, I am identifying something outside myself, very much, very far outside myself in every way that you can be separate. Whereas in a conversation with Mark Vernon, you are a part of me. You know what I mean? Uh, Because I'm, because the creative, uh, element and the imaginative element of the conversation is actually um, I'm kind of creating Mark Vernon and, and I'm using the data that's, you know, I'm using the information that's coming in, but that information, you know, when the, when the spirit is there or whatever, that information that's coming in actually is coming in from my spirit of, uh, from my sense of, of creation. Does that make Mm. sense or is it? Am I being too hippy dippy? No, no. I mean, see, again, I think that we do this all day, every day, but um, we don't
1: quite realise it's one of these things that's so close to us that we hardly notice it. Um, but you do notice it, for example, in psychotherapy, because when someone comes with you, comes to you with a trouble, um, you know, very often it's to do with things that have happened, um, you know, now or in the past. But it's as much how what's going on is interpreted that's causing the real life sometimes you know life destroying trouble. And um, so how we interpret things, how we experience it, what we take to an experience as well as take from an experience, all this um, is, goes on in this imaginative domain. Um, mm-hmm. And it may be fantasy, it may be foolish, it may be all those as well. But in this romantic tradition of which Barfield's a part, um, particularly stemming from Coleridge, um, they develop ways of discerning what is imagination actually as it were connects with reality um mm-hmm. beyond yourself as opposed to just your own fabrications. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um and, and and another really key figure is William Blake, um who too I think developed really quite actually a complex system that's kind of buried in his poetry um because he wants you to wrestle with it in order to yeah. really see it and feel it. Right. Um, but but yeah um we because we've um you know, we're so dominated by machine metaphors for who
0: we are now that um,
1: yeah. uh, we we've lost almost lost touch with what, nonetheless, is going on all day and every day.
0: Yeah, it's true. And, and uh, you know, I, while I don't disagree with anything you just said, the word interpretation has been a sticking point. You know what I mean? Like uh, because it it turns my experience of Mark Vernon into a scientific experience, where I where I say. Uh, okay, now I've formed. I, I have formed um, Mark in my mind, and there's now a dividing line. So everything that he confirms with, everything that he confirms with data, moves over into just reality, and everything that he disconfirms moves over into incorrect so there 's no liminal space there there 's no, there's no holy Spirit as I think of it, which is I, I, that 's a term that also needs a ton of unpacking there 's no, nothing in the middle there that says that there 's a real life in my imagination of you or there 's a real life in my imagination so that 's actually why I feel like that you saying uh, create, creativity as a sixth sense is important because it actually creates this this holy spirit between the um, you know I don't know between like m- my abstraction of you uh, like or between like the reality of you and, and the ground of what you really are there's this other thing that's useful to me as the as the perceiver um, yeah
1: yeah well again you know there's nothing actually that novel about this idea even if it feels novel um, you know because data is only what you've abstracted from reality and the way you abstract it from reality is by what you, how you interpret reality. Yeah. You know, so you need, as it were, an imagination of atomism before mm. you can see atoms. Um, mm. You know, it's, reality does not sit around with labels saying this is an atom, um, you yeah. know, any more than in your brain. Um, the brain sits around with a region saying this is where you see things right. and this is where you smell things. And yeah. um, you have to have models that you take to what yeah. you're investigating. And yeah. those models are generated imaginatively. Um, yeah. I mean, this, this is really self-evident in physics. I think a lot of the struggle that people have is that, um, that biology tends to dominate people's um, sense of what's scientific and what's not. And mm. the thing about biology is it's had this incredible success with the evolution of Darwinian evolution um, that has, is, a, is a hugely imaginative undertaking that Darwin took to the natural world and then others have developed sense. And it, it it makes sense. It joins so many dots, um, but it's very dominant in biology. Whereas in physics, um, physics has always known that it's different. Um, uh, I don't know. Approaches to reality are mutually incompatible. You know. So relativity, on the one hand, is completely mutually incompatible with quantum theory.
0: Um, mm-hmm. You
1: know. One is deterministic. One is random. Seemingly, um, and uh, so physicists always know that what you take uh reveals what you see yeah um, and you're definitely seeing something otherwise we'd all be mad and crazy and wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to speak or communicate in any way at all yeah um, you know wouldn't be able to use um science to make technology wouldn't be able to use arts to find meaning yeah um so but we're always uh you know looking at reality through these layers but to speak to your point about co-creativity, that also is part of our freedom because that invites us to make more and more and more of reality, um, which I think is ultimately to participate in the kind of divine creativity, which is this continual expansion and unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, you know, picking up um, a new thread and seeing where that leads you and amplifying that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so so the, if, if it makes you feel a bit nervous, you know, where's reality? Um, the upside is that there's always more and more of reality to expand and co-create right. um, the way that it actually works.
0: Yeah. I mean, which, is, which might be terrifying to, to some people. Um, but I, I think there's something in the air. There's something in, in, in the consciousness right now that is, is making this idea of a wide open, uh, you know, future of expanding reality is, is making it, more appealing if you consider things like Joe Rogan having physicists onto his show, you know, and a lot of people i mean which probably annoys physicists to no end, there are a lot of people out there who are discussing uh you know certain things quantum physics and that kind of thing who really know the like sort of narrative talking points of it uh you know like the 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 two slit experiment or whatever. Uh, and that kind of thing. And the first time Joe Rogan had, I can't remember the name of the physicist, but he's, there's a physicist that he has on regularly. And it's clear that even like Joe doesn't get it. And, he, and he'll admit it. He's like, I've read this book and I, I still don't really get it. But is there something so compelling? I think it is maybe what you're describing where the, there's this science that actually does involve a certain amount of faith and a certain amount of of, of creativity and imagination and, and acceptance of the fact that you might be you might be spinning your wheels in search of of truth that we haven't accessed yet or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think
1: physicists, there's a kind of guilt. There's a secret that every physicist hides, which is that they actually take their models of reality and then go and find the maths. That can formalise the theory and then turn it into experiments to, te- to test the formalisms. Yeah. Um, but you know, the holographic u- universe that didn't come sort of spring spontaneously out of looking at atoms. That came because a few physicists thought, look, holograms where the whole is contained in all the parts maybe that's a good model for the cosmos and then they go and then their genius is that they can turn that into mathematical formalisms, and that is immensely complicated and when i did in yeah. you know, undergraduate physics degree we got we sort of tiptoed towards the schrodinger equation once or twice and that was about it um <laughs> you know doing no more than that so there's real expertise there don't get me wrong but the bigger yeah. picture stuff um it, it is quite widely shared actually you know that reality might be random at base. Or if you're like Einstein, that reality is deterministic at base. Um, You know, there's there's sort of, I don't know, half a dozen models or so that that do the rounds in physics. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, you know, we can um, have access to those with a bit of thought. Um, The mistake I think people make is they then think that somehow quantum physics shows that this is the case or that's the case. It's actually the other way around that people's intuitions or, or or deeply worked out experience or philosophy of reality is taken to the quantum physics.
0: Right. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's, we do have uh, a feeling of wanting to jump into certainties, you know, and if, if you, if you realize the ground you're standing on, isn't a certainty to you anymore, you want to jump, jump to another certainty. Um, Which is, which is why somebody like, uh, like Rupert Sheldrake kind of comes smirking into the equation and sort of you know says well what about this you know and uh, you know so I... I, that's very good. oh thank you no I (laughs) oh man there was a time where my whole uh, my whole sort of online life was listening to the voice of Rupert Sheldrake and Ian McGilchrist and I'm amazed that I didn't fall asleep because those two men have these beautiful resonant voices they're also both incidentally people who are on my dream list to talk to but anyway um so yeah so i guess um i i when i when i hear your book there's this kind of there's original participation and then we move into um the original participation in which kind of there isn't a, a strong strong sense of of uh, in the individual and then we move into uh, what was it called Reci- is it reciprocal or what yeah
1: yeah so so there's a kind of withdrawal of participation where we feel alienated and have to struggle and wrestle with things um, and then barfield called it well he actually more commonly calls it in his books final participation in fact but he does sometimes refer to it as reciprocal participation and i went for that because i felt it was a bit clearer because he meant final yeah. not as in the end but final as in the direction the telos Mm. Um, but that's not so commonly, right. you know, that's not the way the word's used very much now. Um, so reciprocal, though, means that basically you know, our inner life reflects outer life. And so we feel a participation. We yeah. feel that's at that's once right. deep and true and connected, but also is free so we can maneuver around. And that's the great advantage of the alienating phase. Yeah. You know, it's very common in spiritual traditions where struggle actually gives birth to enlightenment. Right. There's no enlightenment without the struggle. You know, there's no death without resurrection, would be the Christian way of putting it. Absolutely, um, and so it's 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 seeing that in operation.
0: And I think when you see the phases of 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 human cognition or of consciousness as laid out in the book, I mean, they map onto my personal experience of life within my lifespan. You know what I mean? Like the the infant, uh, the infant, part, uh, you know, experiencing their mother is. Original participation and then you go into this period of 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 learning in which you get disillusioned and you get a lot of injuries while you're testing out things like physics and uh, and then there's this period um, like then you develop a sense of of yourself you know and you you separate your identity from your parent and then you go into this period of adolescence, which uh, if if I were to sort of add my own terminology there, I would say the reformation feels like uh consciousness is adolescence where now um and the book isn't i wouldn't say you're very glowing i I, there were a couple attempts to kind of say and this was important you know uh, but in in general the reformation felt to me like uh, the movement that was like well it was it was like when uh it's like when you try and and fully define your sense of yourself. And you, you sort of are saying, I am this, You know, I, I'm a punk. I dress like a punk. I listen to punk music. And uh, those who don't listen to punk music are not punks. You know what I mean? And, and like, it's this process of, uh, necessary process of kind of self-consciously defining yourself. And that, d- d- does that resonate with you, what I'm saying about the reference? Yeah, no, no, I mean,
1: it's, it, it's, ne- it's necessary. The dissent is necessary. Um, before the ascent Um, Mm. because you have to be able to detach yourself in order to become freer but then you don't just want to remain independent you want to become interdependent. Yeah. Um, I mean there are parallels I think with developmental cycles in the human lifespan um, you know like from infancy through adolescence and so on as you're saying but actually I think original participation back in history um, say with um, Aboriginal people and Barfield um, wasn't calling them infants in consciousness. He what he was saying was that they, it was a completely different consciousness mm-hmm. It has its own sophistication mm-hmm. and its own complexities. You know, if you read ancient mythology It's quite clear that it's got wisdom complexity nuance mm. Um, you know, it's quite as sophisticated as what we tell ourselves now. Yeah. Um, but it's a different way of navigating through life yeah. um, And in particular, it's this you know, the ancient people don't ask is there meaning they're they're flooded with meaning and they have to find their way through that meaning. And finding their way through that meaning is quite as sophisticated and and adult, if you like, mature. Um, You know, nothing lasts unless it matures. And these uh, systems in various parts of the world lasted for centuries, millennia. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so, so with that one really important proviso, actually, because Barfield's also not a linear thinker. You know, he's not like some... Uh, developmentalists these days that feel the consciousness just kind of gets better and better and more sophisticated, more integrated whatever. he's not like that at all. Yeah. He's, he's much more um, uh, a kind of um, alienation and return thinker. You, the u shape was his favorite shape and um, mm. so that we fall away from one consciousness but by reflecting both on what we've lost and where we might be headed we gain a new one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah so that, that's much more the shape of things for him.
0: yeah absolutely and, and so for the record uh, I I'm not making a value judgment about infancy at all. I I actually have a huge respect for for uh infants and the things that they do and learn uh and uh, so I guess yeah it could it could be seen as what I what I just said was it, uh, implying that these early civilizations and stuff were uh, and early humans were we're infantile, but that's that's not at all what I what what I mean. I guess I'm just uh, yeah. But I did I did bring a value judgment into adolescence, so uh, <laughs> so yeah. It's all, it's all necessary. It's, not, it's, it's necessary. not a perfect. Yeah, it is, yeah. and there's a real dogmatism to uh, to a a thirteen year old's mind, which is an yeah. interesting thing. But I do like this idea that you're talking about with the U shape, uh, be you know with disillusion and and return. And I think, I mean, it would be really difficult. It would take a lot of effort to espouse the worldview that uh, consciousness gets better and better because we look around at what we have now and what we accomplish now compared to what, you know, people accomplished in the past. And I don't think you can say it's better. You know, I mean certainly our our robotics are superior to that of the ancient egyptians now but you know like that, like in general it's that's one of the things that has been difficult to um, difficult for me is that i have been uh, had this intuition that we actually need a next phase a next phase of evolution of consciousness but at the same time my picture of what the, uh, of a of a my picture of people of evol- of human beings evolving as a species would be more like, okay, we it's Star Trek time. And, and now we've all come to this conclusion that yes, we're going to be, um, you know, we're going to be peaceful and we're going to have, um, we're all going to wear the same clothes, and we're going to do away with money. You know, we're ready for this, and everyone's yes, everyone's on board. With a few little kind of maybe remainders who are just and eh, antiquated, um, you know, and that. But but being being ready for the next phase of of consciousness's evolution is actually really messy. And I think even in my email to you, I mentioned that the that the, what I what I am the feeling is more to me like um, an agrarian tribe who based on a bunch of environmental factors is actually making the very difficult or coming to the difficult conclusion that maybe they need to be nomadic uh, and and actually change their way of life and that would not be a smooth that would be mo- that that wouldn't be a smooth thing does that th- does that kind of make sense and 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 what do you how do you see the the need for evolution right now of consciousness mm-hmm. yeah Um, Well, I I
1: mean, a number of things. I mean, I think part of the reason why there's such a fascination for the past and the deep past, um, whether it be, you know, the the way that I know objects from ancient Egypt fill up the galleries of the world and we walk through the Egyptian galleries and are completely transfixed by them. um, At some level, they're speaking to us of an awareness that we've largely lost um, and that it compels us, it draws us. Um, to want to know what that's about, um, you know. Or conversely, the way that there's fascination with indigenous cultures. Um, I mean, it's partly because of the desperate state um, that um, these people find themselves in, and concern about that, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think part of the fascination is that they clearly engage with the world in a, with a nuance and a sophistication that again is being lost to us. You know, we have a mobile phone that's got its own nuance and sophistication, but they can listen to the wind and the trees yeah. and expect a kind of nuance and sophistication, a whole ecology of being, I think, mm-hmm. that is largely lost to us for all the achievements of science. Um, and so I think that, you know, listen, watching where people are drawn, um, this is the, this is again like the soul of words, you know, that where the energy is taking us and Barfield thought the poetry works for example not because um, just that you know it puts words together in a clever way but the putting the words together in an, in a unique way releases a kind of energy um, that the words um, mm. can channel you know this is part of their facet of having soul um, and similarly to sort of try and follow the energy in life again you know the religious Christian way of putting it would be to follow the spirit um, and, that, and that will take us somewhere um, but you got to do the work, you've got to kind of make it something of your own in order to stay yourself on this path and not just get mm-hmm. kind of blasted like a psychedelic trip. Um, you know a psychedelic trip might open your mind to, to more than you ever thought but at the yeah. end of the day you have to come around and try and live a life right. um, and, that, and make it part of you and that's the real task both individually and culturally I think.
0: yeah you have to take something away and, and create uh at least a, a, at least a few uh, create a little bit of a future in front of your face that you can move towards that you that you want to move towards that calls to you in some way so uh yeah do you have a theory about what the next um what the next evolution of consciousness will be like do you have uh is it is it a return to religious thinking or is it what how do you How do you view the next thousand years or is that too
1: <laughs> yeah um I, the answer I don't know um of course. uh I mean I think something uh is afoot now um and you know at the end of the day you try and make some of it yourself and with the groups of people you find and you do things like podcasts or write books and so on um to try and deepen the sense of it um I mean, I think, one thing I think is really important for us in a materialistic age is to always remember that heaven is not a place on earth. And the minute where you try to build heaven on earth, you end up building tyrannies. Um, And again, you know, a kind of more expanded consciousness realizes that um, the material life we lead is just one aspect of a much, much broader life. Mm -hmm. Um, And most, you know, I feel most humans or most of history have had quite a keen awareness that this life is just one aspect of the life that we live. It's got its own tasks, if you like. Um, I think particularly to um, become more individual, to take more responsibility, to learn more what freedom's about, to develop capacities and virtues that enable you to experience and see more and more of reality. And mm. um, that would be my sense of what this life is about. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, this life will die. Um, there's no doubt about that. But again, in any spiritual tradition of real sophistication, and that is there, you know, I mentioned Blake earlier on, um, one of Blake's characters, Loss, um, goes around with his kind of hammer and tongs and his anvil and his furnaces, constantly trying to build Golganuza, as he <laughs> puts it. Um, but whenever there's the kind of apotheosis moments in Blake, Golganuza goes, in fact, and Loss's <laughs> effort is not actually in what he's built, but it's what he's found out about himself in the attempt to build it. Um, right. So I think that, you know, the more important thing is that we, we do take this life seriously, um, yeah. but we're also prepared to kind of let it go as well, because the fruits of this life are actually, um, you know, found elsewhere. I think.
0: Mm. Well, that's that's a great answer, and the reason I the reason I like that answer is that it's more about a uh, it's more about a way of, of moving. It's more about a way of perceiving than it is about a than it is about a utopian future, and I think that's. Um, that's kind of what we need, you know, uh, like even, even in the fact that um, one of the things that's interesting in your book is that it talks about the, the biblical canon being cr- created over a long period. I can't remember the exact number of years, but over quite yeah, a long period.
1: Three, three centuries, say something like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I, I always thought of that as a, as a annoying thought. You know especially as I was trying to defend this this faith that was so supposed to be so coherent um you know and so like no con- no no contradictions and and that kind of thing so I guess that um it, it seems like what you're describing is uh is that we move towards a future that is both sought and revealed at at the same time that there is a you know th- that we move forward in faith towards, uh, towards a better future while we kind of imagine what that future might be as we go and let that imagination, let that imagination of the future grow and change as, as we move. And uh, I, I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just rephrasing, not really asking a question.
1: Yeah, no, no, I mean, yeah, you know, texts, um, the meaning is not actually on the page, the meaning emerges when you engage and read from the page, that's where it comes back to life again. Mm. Um, so fundamentalism, if that means um, the Bible is kind of inerrant via the words on the page, is to my mind, just misunderstands reading. Right. Um, no one actually does that. You have to interpret the words to yeah. read and make something of them. Um, yeah, and, yeah and, and I mean, the other, the other aspect of it, maybe this is more overtly, what well, it is, it's more overtly theistic or a question of faith that um, I think we live in an open system universe, you know, not a closed system. It's not up, to, at the end of the day, it's not actually up to us to make something of the future. The future has its own energy, its own life. Our question is, you know, whether we, we want to go with it and try and amplify it and expand it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that's both wonderful It's a challenge uh, and it has its ups and downs, but it's also yeah. a bit relaxing. You know, I feel that maybe quite a lot of our problems these days would just depressurize somewhat. If we had faith in life itself, rather mm. than it's, again, I think it comes from the machine model that we somehow have to make it all ourselves. And if we don't make it all ourselves, then the whole thing falls apart.
0: Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. And so, uh, yeah, I I really do appreciate how non-prescriptive all this is, and how it it's rather framing it's framing the fact that we do evolve. It's not even a, you know, it's not even a question of we must take the reins and, and, and now evolve. It's that we do evolve. Um, the one thing I would take away that I, that it feels a bit prescriptive or, or one thing I would like to encourage in the world is, is that people really grapple with the definition of imagination and creativity and that they, and that everyone take within themselves the, the duty, but the also the joy and and the um just the universality of of the creative act and of of imagination and the fact that it's not something you've got to go learn to do it's something you're doing now and 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 being aware of it and forming a relationship with it is going to make is going to make your life better or at least make your your inner life you know better mm-hmm. so um yeah
1: no i mean I, I i completely agree with you and sort of to demystify or whatever it takes imagination that by as it we're getting up in the morning morning and experiencing the day in the way that you experience it whether you love the sun or hate the rain whatever it might be that is an imaginative act mm-hmm. um, it's not just one spontaneously that's come up in the moment it's got a backstory it's kind of emerged over time but if it's emerged over time it means that it can shift into the future um and the way you use words you know if you're an artist the way you use the medium of your art and you know, if you're if you're a parent the way you relate to your children all these things come out of this capacity we have to um not just be robots essentially but yeah. to to change to have some sort of degree of freedom um, yeah. to react and so on and respond
0: yeah Yes, and to not create uh, a firm and settled and final conclusion about what life is now, and not not to enforce what the future must be, uh, uh, to let, let life live and, and live it imaginatively. Um, it, it feels like that's that's kind of what I take uh, from the book, and uh, you know, like I know it's I know it's what the Romantics um, were were a, Doing very successfully, but I also know that a lot of people will not, you know, may never reach a point in their lives where they can sit down with that romantic poetry, uh, and and it will it it will move them in the way that something else might, or you know, I guess I guess you know something nonverbal. So I just like you know right. want to affirm that while words have a soul, words are really revealing a soul um, that is is kind of a wordless. Thing and so that someone may, someone else may experience that soul through craftsmanship or through uh, other other experiences of life, and, and, and it doesn't need to be limited to.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. You know the beauty of nature, um, the kinds of things which you know people have their different takes on things. Different kinds of music, for example, doesn't have to be one sort of music. many mm-hmm. um, different kinds of words. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah well i mean that that feels like a a good spot we've been going for an hour this has been really enjoyable um, and i I really appreciate your book so thank you for writing it
1: yeah well look look, thank you for me for picking it up because it kind of comes out of my heart and wrestling and and so on so it's really tremendous when it connects that's all about kind of participating in it and you know if uh, if uh, you want to talk again then please do be in touch Um, oh absolutely i hope that You know a bit like Barfield's ideas serving some greater reality you know I I hope that um, what I try and put down connects with others has it kind of you know unfolds things further down the line yeah so please be back in touch.
0: thank you yes I think I will I I would like to actually get into you've got quite a lot of work around Dante's Inferno um, and that's something that is a, a whole world that I have just sampled so far and I want to I might want to talk about that at some point so if you're open to open to that then I'll be no for sure yeah and I'm doing this
1: podcast which is a canto by canto trot through Dante's divine comedy the inferno the purgatory and the paradise and um, the idea is again this is a transformative text it works on you it it changes your experience so and it's this it's the 700th anniversary of the paradise the last part this year and the next year it's the 700th anniversary of Dante's death so it's kind okay. of a good time to do it as well.
0: wow yeah I mean it's something that it, there is a, a bit of a prohib... the language of it can be a bit prohibitive and all the symbolism so it's really cool that you can kind of unpack unpack that um, so yeah I would, I would love to to delve a bit more into that and then talk to you about that and uh, yeah so uh, thank you so much for being on the show and if nothing else yeah sorry i was going to say if nothing else take away from from this that your work is 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 hitting people and and resonating and and uh and and yeah much appreciated
1: thank you i appreciate that very much too cheers